Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. It would take a miracle to wash me clean. Can the past truly be forgotten? In this episode, Pastor Andrew shows us how the blood of Jesus can wash away our sinful past. I was intrigued that Tim and Neil didn't know what to do with this verse, which is the first verse of Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the book. And I have to assure you, either it doesn't get much better than this, maybe it gets worse. Why do I say that? So blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. That's just an awesome statement. Unless you're not. You're not what? Blameless. And looking around, and not in this room, by the way, but picking up the newspaper, there's a few of us that aren't. In fact, there's some of us that are far from blameless. Well, blameless in what sense? We can do some little wrong things inadvertently. Because we didn't know they were wrong, or we didn't mean to do them. And that's what the Day of the Atonement in the Old Testament was about. It was those inadvertent sins. Those ones you didn't mean to do or you didn't know they were wrong when you were doing them. Although your conscience does have a fairly clear mandate to let you know one way or the other. Paul, when he talks about his own unworthiness, says that I am blameless according to the law. Now, he obviously read Psalm 119. And not only he read it, but he kept it. And I don't know how many other Israelites or Jewish people of his day could make the same claim. You might say, is he putting it on? No, I don't think he is. Because when he gets to the end of the passage, he says, I'm the worst of sinners. So a man who is blameless according to the law tells us, that he's the worst sinner out. Well, how does that compute? And he's the worst sinner out because he persecuted his God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, blessed are those who are blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, and the rest of the psalm extols the law, unpacks what this first verse means in some real terms. What is blameless, what is not. What is not obvious is what on earth you do if you're not and you want to make a New Year's resolution. You want to change your ways. It might seem that, hey, 
I'm not going to walk in sin anymore. I'm now turning to the law to keep it full on. So what happens to the past? How do I resolve the meanness of my way, the sinfulness of my way, the broken lawlessness of my way prior to this decision that I make, this New Year's resolution, that I'm now going to keep the law perfectly and I will walk blameless. I will walk according to the law. I'm not quite sure you can actually do that. You may be able to do it, but I don't know what then happens to the past. And I'm sure a little bit more study and working through some of that will get us there and maybe we ought to know that question. Maybe he says, well, look, you know, now that you've had a good change of heart, now that you've had a good change of your ways, let's just forget the past. But can the past be forgotten? Can the sins of the past just be, well, that was yesterday. And today, I'm a new man, a new person. One of the intriguing little comments that is recorded in the New Testament about the crucifixion of Jesus is the law states, cursed are those who are hung on a tree. And it's always intrigued me because I'm pretty sure crucifixion wasn't an element 2,000 years before Jesus came. It certainly was an extreme Roman punishment, prolific Roman punishment. Well, maybe it's talking about hanging people. And if you watch Westerns, they hang people all the time. If the law won't hang them, we'll hang them. We think the person's guilty, we'll hang them. You stole a horse, yes, you might repent, and yes, you might pay for the horse, but you stole it, so we'll hang you. So there goes, the past does matter. One of the intriguing things about the New Testament is that the past is over. It actually is wiped clean. And what wipes it clean but the blood of Jesus? That there on the cross, he took our sin for us. He took the past for us. So if I make a decision now to act blamelessly and follow the law full on, if I come to Jesus, I have this confidence that the past is over. And Paul says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. The past is gone. So there on the cross, Jesus dealt with our past. Now, what is our past? The point prior to our repentance and commitment to follow Jesus Christ and to invite him into our hearts as our Lord and Saviour. That act on our behalf is the beginning of the end of the past, our past. Two weeks ago, Tim and Neil got up here and done a panel sermon, which I added to at the end. That sermon came about because 
recovering from wisdom tooth and I got here but there was no way I was going to be able to preach. And when we were talking about it in the vestry, I said this just could be simply an issue with the wisdom tooth. But it was noted that perhaps there was a spiritual issue in preparation for that Sunday. I had mentioned my thoughts about rejoicing to Tim and Neil, and they picked that up. Let me read the passage again. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there's no grapes on the vines, and then the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Now, the guys unpacked that saying that we live in a different world, we're probably more prosperous than that, and we can't go down to the local supermarket. But in another context, we are, in a sense, suffering like Habakkuk was that the church is in disarray. Its reputation out there is like mud. And you can feel like after all this time, after all this effort, we should be packed to the rafters, and we should be packed to the rafters. And so in the midst of that comment, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. When everything is not going the way we feel it ought to, we should rejoice in the Lord. But I gave some thought as to was there a spiritual problem with my not being able to deliver a sermon on that day, and I think there was. I had woken up one evening and was thinking about Habakkuk. I had this the smallest of commentaries on Habakkuk, 50 or 60 pages, which is a really small commentary. And I started to read, and the scholar was saying that Habakkuk is about history. It's not about personal salvation. In fact, personal salvation in the Bible is only a secondary thing. And that threw me again, because it's not the first of the scholars recently that have been taking away or edging away or eating away at that personal element of our salvation for which Jesus went to the cross for. So is our personal salvation secondary? I don't think so. I think your salvation and my salvation is the prime reason that Jesus went to the cross. Yes, he's wanting to destroy the kingdom of darkness. Yes, he's wanting to bring down the rulers and the principalities Yes, and he's wanting to restore righteousness on the earth. But it's not the primary element to that. He went there for you and for me. And some of you will remember that I have said that if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have come for you. And I am convinced of it. So, where does the individual fit in the purposes of God? And of course, the argument between 
state and the individual has been an ongoing philosophical argument for hundreds of years, if not longer. And of course, the author of this little book on Habakkuk was trying to deal with our individualism, which is a criticism of Western nation people because we have it so good that it all becomes about us. You know, it's always about us. It doesn't matter whether you've got the good stuff or you haven't got the good stuff. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It's about us or about me. So individualism is not a reason to do away with the individual. It'll be a challenge for us to deal with, but not by eliminating our value, our rights, our importance to God. And then it struck me. Now, I know there are a lot of people who don't believe the Genesis story. And I was recently writing to an official and made a comment about Job's friends. And I made the comment, I wouldn't want to have been one of Job's counsellors or friends when God turned up, unless that's just a myth, which a lot of the scholars think it is. But if it's just a myth, at least the thought behind the story has real credence. So why do I say that? Well, for many people, the first chapter, the second chapter of Genesis is pure myth. And a lot of people, a lot of scientists don't believe in the Genesis stories. And yet a lot of Christian scientists do. But here's the point. God created only one person. Called him Adam in the story. And he created all the cattle and the dogs and the cats and all those things that are man's best friend. But even though the cats and the dogs and the cows and the lions and all that were great pals, they weren't enough, as the story goes. So God put Adam to sleep, took out one of his ribs and created another to be a real mate, a real support to Adam. And prior to the fall, that cooperative, supportive relationship was so strong and so pure until they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now they knew evil, And that purity died. That purity in the relationship died. Biblically, God started with one person. And if that's the case, then the individual is extremely important to God. Now, obviously in making Eve, they gave them the potential to produce a world that now holds almost 7 billion people, incredibly diversified. So the individual is important to God. Now, you might say, well, that's just a mythical story. Okay, well, let's take the evolution theory for a little bit. Not to denounce it. We have the amoeba, the beginning of the story. And over millions of years, this 
complex development occurs till you get the apes and all that and we evolve from that and evolve from that and evolve from that until finally we get modern men. Did this happen to two apes? You know, did the development of humanity come from two apes or 2,000 apes? Now, I think there's some complex problems with both theories. But if we take evolution at heart, then seriously, you and I aren't important at all. If there is no God in the process, no eternal God who created space and time, you and me, then our importance is absolutely zilch. And the only reason to give importance to us is so that we can live in a reasonable society and not just kill each other off left, right and centre. So if the individual is important to God, then what did he do when we couldn't keep verse 1? That we didn't stand blameless. And we weren't walking according to the law. Because Paul makes it really clear in Galatians that the law has no power to save us. It can make us aware of our sin, but it has no power apart from threat, from curse, from punishment, or the threat of punishment, to help us overcome sin in our life. So how do we deal with not being blameless? The other issue that has come forth in the midst of this is that some scholars have got a notion that the statements of Paul, where he says that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, are not a true rendition of the Greek. And so I've looked at some of these passages, and yes, there is a problem. There is a little ambiguity in how you would translate the word pistis with Jesus Christ. So traditionally the translation is faith in Jesus Christ. But the Greek could also be taken to mean the faith of Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So in those passages which challenge you and I to have faith in Jesus Christ, really he's not talking about our faith. He's talking about Jesus' faithfulness. Now my problem with a lot of the passages is that, that translation, that acceptance of faithfulness of Jesus Christ, just doesn't add anything. doesn't say anything. doesn't actually mean anything in the context of the passages that they're in. But if they're translated faith in Jesus Christ, they give you and I instruction. They not only challenge us, but they challenge us in the way that we can deal with Psalm 119 verse 1 in our life and that the past can be finished with through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. 
that we are saved by grace, not by our works, through faith in Jesus Christ. That there on the cross, he did it all. He did everything that was necessary to deal with our waywardness, our sinfulness, our rebellion, our arrogance, our self-glorification. That when we make that New Year's resolution, I am finished with sin. I'm finished with my own willfulness. I'm finished with disobedience. And I'll give my life totally to God in Jesus. And I'll follow him with all my heart, with my soul, with my strength, with all my mind. And I'll love him because he first loved me. That in that action of acceptance, that action of reception, the past is over. The guilt of my conscience is cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We can have a peculiar conscience. Some people will say, there's nothing wrong with what I do. And yet you and I know there's something really wrong with what they're doing. And you may be able to convince them. Because Paul says their consciences have been seared. Yes, the conscience told them it was wrong to start with, and they kept ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it till their conscience decided it's not worth saying anything anymore. And the conscience just shut up, closed down. But when Jesus Christ comes into our hearts, his blood cleanses our conscience, wipes it clean and restores it. And that is why a new Christian, shortly after conversion, will come under great conviction about their sinfulness because their conscience is back up working again and reminds them. You realise that? The conscience forewarns you not to, and then when you do, remind you that you did it. But the blood of Jesus restores it. And in that moment when the new Christian is confronted, he or she has a lot to confess. And confess they do. And God just wipes the slate clean. The past is wiped out and can only ever come back if we do not forgive those who have offended us. But there are scholars who want to say that the penal substitution of Jesus on the cross for our sin, in other words, in taking our punishment for sin, which enables our past to be wiped clean, is a pagan idea. What does that mean? I'm sure you've seen movies where they take the young, beautiful lady up to the volcano and throw her in to sacrifice to the god. And yes, we are used to the idea of pagan sacrifices of humans or food or stuff to appease the gods. 
But that's got nothing to do with what the Bible's talking about. And it's got nothing to do with the nature of the eternal God, who in the nature of the Son, to deal with our sin, gave himself for us. To appease God, to appease the wrath of God, is that what that was about? So let's come back a little bit to God. The Bible says God is love. And I can tell you, absolutely true. The Bible says God gets angry, but it never says God is anger. His nature is love, and love, not by itself, but with another ingredient, causes him to have anger. So what is that ingredient? The concept of God's righteousness and justice. Imagine if God wasn't righteous. Imagine if God did not believe in justice. What a wreck of a world we would have. We already got a wreck of a world. But what a worse wreck. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. We know there's a lot of sin out there and a lot of pain and agony and meanness and greed and all that. But imagine if that's all the world was. That every moment of every day that you encounter in our community, you are having to navigate your way through evil or through evil acts or through evil people. If it wasn't that there is justice there, and there is righteousness there, we would have no sense between what is good and what is evil. And a righteous God and a just God, and this has been a traditional Christian theological stream, biblical stream, that sin cannot stand in the presence of God. But sin has to be dealt with. And there on the cross, Jesus took our sin. That we could stand before a righteous God, a loving God, clean, accepted, welcomed, with privileges. You don't have to crawl into God's presence because of the blood of Jesus we come to stand there and to give honour to our God, to bless him, to glorify him, to love him and to serve him because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that when we fail to be blameless according to the law, you died for us. That there on the cross you took our sin. You took the penalty for our sin. And you brought us forgiveness to such a strength that our past is gone. Cleansed by your blood. We ask that you would cleanse us afresh this day and give us your righteousness so we can live our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.